Everybody else will be in the book of John today. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 1. We will be finishing out the first chapter together. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. And it has a table of contents if you've never used a Bible before. In the New Testament, you'll find a book called John. That's where we will be this morning. We're in a series called Getting Started. As a church, we believe that the Bible, as Todd prayed, is God's Word. It's truthful, it's trustworthy, and it is uh, dependable. So our habit together is to open to a book of the Bible and just make our way through it, thought by thought by thought, submitting ourselves to the Lord that He might teach us, for He speaks through His Word. So John 1, 35 to 51 is where we'll be today, and Roxanne is going to come read for us. Roxanne is a member here and faithfully serves with our international ministry called Life Among the Nations. If you're an international student, this would be somebody great to get to know. Would you read for us, sister? John 1, 35 to 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the land of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cyphus, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophet wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I say to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? He will see greater things than this. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Thank you. I could listen to you read all day. (laughs) Imagine a conversation with Jim. Jim is not his real name, of course, but he knows most of us English speakers couldn't pronounce his given name, so he's made it simple. Jim. 
Jim's a graduate student at ASU. He's an incredibly bright man, getting a degree in electrical engineering. He's working on his master's and then hopes to move on to a PhD before he goes back to his home country. Jim is a kind man, a thoughtful man. And he's anxious to meet Americans and get to know and experience American culture, much to our uh, uh, astonishment. Jim knows most things he knows about Americans from TV back home. You met Jim at class last spring, and a genuine friendship has formed. Been to some movies together, visited a museum downtown, and even had Jim over for dinner in your house. But today, after all these months, you finally worked up the courage to ask Jim about his spiritual beliefs. You ask Jim over a meal, what do you believe about God? Jim says, uh, I'm not really sure. What do you mean? To which you respond, well, I'm a Christian. What do you believe? And Jim asks a very natural, understandable, obvious question. What's a Christian? Jim's from a part of the world with very few churches and almost no Christians. So he simply has no experience. What is a Christian? What would you say? If that were you sitting across the table from Jim, what would your response be? Well, some view what it means to be a Christian as simply to acknowledge that there is a God and that he expects us to be kind people. Other people believe that to be a Christian is to subscribe to a set of morals. So it's a a set of rules to follow. Other people believe that you're, you're simply born into Christianity. So either you have it or you don't based on your parents. And still others believe that Christianity is a blind hope that the spiritual world exists. You might be surprised to hear that if you pick up the Bible and read it, none of those are adequate definitions of Christianity. It's something more than that. Today we'll see in John 1 that Jesus takes center stage. And what Jesus does is define for us what a Christian is. To be a Christian, according to this passage, means two things. It means to follow Jesus and to help other people follow Jesus. It's plain and simple. To follow Jesus and to help other people follow Jesus. Now, although there's obvious overlap between the two, let's take them individually this morning and consider them one by one. Thus far in the book of John, if you've been with us, you've seen that Jesus is a member of the Trinity, as theologians call it. God is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three have been in the passage thus far. And we've seen that Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. So to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, is to see and hear God. He is God made known, 
God revealed. You see, Jesus is God took on flesh in order to take on sin. And throughout this book of John, we're going to be told over and over and over again that if you'll believe in Jesus, then you'll be saved. If you believe in Jesus, then you become a child of God. Now, we've also heard from the great eyewitness, John the Baptist. No, he was not a Baptist. He, he was a, a baptizer. A little close to home for a few of you. But Jesus himself hasn't said anything yet. Have you noticed? There's been talk about Jesus, but Jesus himself has not spoken. Well, in our passage today that was read for us, we see him speaking. And his invitation is to follow him. Look at John 1, 37. The two disciples heard him say this, that's John the Baptist, and they followed Jesus. And then down at verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, interestingly, the very last book, the very last chapter of this book says the same thing. Here in chapter 1, we see Jesus inviting a man named Simon Peter, follow me. And then in the last chapter, we see this, John 21, 19. And after saying this, he, that's Jesus, said to him, that's Peter, follow me. It says, though, that simple command, follow me, is the cover of the great book of the Christian life. It begins with Jesus saying, follow me. It ends with Jesus saying, follow me. And everything else in between, follow me. But what does that actually mean? What does following Jesus look like today in everyday life? Well, in a general sense, every mom in the room knows what that means. If you've had a toddler, that toddler's been attached to your hip. So everywhere you've gone, your child has followed you. But for those of us who haven't been blessed with kids, maybe you've had a puppy. Puppies also know what this means. They nip at your heels and follow you everywhere you go. They're a shadow that won't go away. They're following you. Friends, to follow Jesus is just that. It's to accompany him as your leader. It's to pursue him, to respect him, to obey him, to go along happily wherever he goes because he's in charge. It's to trust yourself into his care and thereby begin the lifelong journey of learning to follow Him in the stuff of everyday life. See, following Jesus isn't only a decision that you make. It's decisions that you make over and over and over again, daily choosing to follow Jesus. There's a well-known Jewish saying from about 200 years before Jesus about being covered in the dust of the rabbi. Now, we're from the desert, but that still is rather odd to us. So let me see if I can explain. Essentially, it meant that disciples 
would follow so closely in the footsteps of the rabbi and would sit at his feet to learn so often that the dust he would kick up would begin to cake, to cover them. It was a way of saying that I want to not just know what my teacher knows, but I want to become like my teacher. Isn't that cool? So I'd ask you Christians, are you covered in the dust of Jesus? Are you abiding in him closely enough day by day that where he goes, you go? What he says, you believe. What he feels, you feel. Is his dust covering you? There's nobody better to follow. In this one section of Scripture, it's told us that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's a rabbi. He's Messiah. He's son of Joseph, son of God, king of Israel, son of man. Eight descriptions or titles or names of Jesus in these few verses. Now, each of those has significance. I wish we could spend the day together looking at them, but I doubt you came prepared for that. So let me just summarize. Jesus is everything you've ever hoped for and more. He's everything. He's God. He loves you completely. And he gave his life for you. So brothers and sisters, if you will learn moment by moment to listen to the voice of Jesus in God's word, then increasingly your life will be marked, will be covered by his dust. And you'll find that this is the way we were created to live. Now, the circumstances around becoming a Christian always differ. No two stories are exactly the same. But the call to follow Jesus is always the same. It's Jesus saying, follow me. Andrew and John, two of the disciples in our passage, began following Jesus because they trusted John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, there's Jesus. And so they began to follow him. Jill and I, when we found we were having a, a second child, he was going to be a son, we're thinking of names to name him. We picked a name based on this passage. Micah's uh, middle name is Andrew. And what did Andrew do? He heard about Jesus, and he went and got his brother, and he brought his brother to Jesus. And most of us have probably never heard of Andrew, but the majority of us have heard of Peter. Andrew could have never known that his brother would become one of the greatest disciples, a leader among the disciples. And that's our prayer for our son, is that he would bring people to Christ men and women alike. So we'll go with Andy. You're called to bring people to Jesus. But that begins with you following, with following him. Simon followed because Andrew brought him. Philip followed because Jesus called out to him. Nathaniel was brought by Philip. None of these stories are identical, but the result is the same. People began to see Jesus as he really is and recognize that he sought them out first. And then they 
transferred trust to him. They turned from the control that they thought they had and gave control where it belongs to Jesus. And therefore, they became his followers. That's what it means to follow. So if you're here today and you recognize as we talk together about John chapter 1, that you've thought of Christianity as something else, or that you're not, you've not really begun this journey of following Jesus, then the invitation to you today is quite simple. Look at verse 36. John the Baptist sees Jesus and he yells, Behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus brought about the great exchange. You see, the Scriptures say that all people are separated from God by our sin. And we're in a state of hostility before Him. We might look ethical, moral, nice, good on the outside and in many ways may live an upright life. But inside, where you can't see, we all have motives and thoughts and actions that don't honor God. And so we are rightly in a state of hostility toward God. And yet Jesus came and He lived the life that humanity was called to live. And then He died the death that we deserve and rose in victory. We sang about that this morning together. Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die. Are you thankful I didn't sing it? Jesus offers Himself so that His death can be your death. His condemnation can be yours. His resurrection can be yours. He offers, in other words, His life to you. And so if you will today turn from sin and turn to Him, you will have life. This is what Christians are always talking about. It's what we call the gospel, the good news. You see, Christianity isn't merely an idea. It's not merely a set of truths, although it is those things, but it's more. It's a person. It's God. It's Jesus. And He is alive and well and continuing to call people to follow Him. God calls you today to come and see who Jesus really is. Now, an incredibly obvious question is, I don't see Him. Where is he? How do we follow Jesus when we can't see him with our eyes? Well, he's not walking around on earth anymore. He ascended back to heaven and he will come again. But in the meantime, how do we see him? Well, we see him in the scriptures. It is in the Bible that his words and his actions are recorded, particularly in the biographies called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you've never read them, I encourage you to and to consider and look at Jesus. Now, we also see Jesus in the body of Christ, the church, the collection of people who are following Jesus. As we love one another sacrificially, 
as we forgive freely, as we serve each other joyfully, as we hold our things loosely and share with those in need. These are all ways in which Jesus is seen because Jesus is changing us. So if you're looking for Jesus, you don't need to look any further than reading in the Bible and hearing the Bible taught and looking for evidence and signs of Him among the people of God. This is what the body of Christ is for. So Jesus invites you today to follow Him, to turn from sin, to turn to God. If you're ready, you can do that right now where you are. There's no formula, no magic prayer. You're just expressing to God in your own words, God, I believe. God, I trust. As the country song says, Jesus, take the wheel. Won't you follow him? There is no better life than a life of following Jesus. Now just briefly, to, to those in the room who already consider themselves Christians, I think a passage like this must lead us to ask an important but not often asked question. Are you sure you're a follower of Jesus? Are you sure? John wants you to know particularly the book of 1 John, another book written by John, is in the Bible so that you can be sure that you have eternal life. John 8, verse 12 says, And again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friends, followers of Jesus are people who are walking in the light. That means we're people who cannot happily continue in known, ongoing sin. It means we're people who can look back a year, two years, three years, and see ways in which God is changing us. It means we're people who believe things today that we didn't used to believe. It means we find ourselves helping people we never dreamed we would help. We find ourselves filled with love and commitment for God's people. We find ourselves radically confronted by the Bible. Does that describe you? Are you really covered in the dust of your rabbi? Are you learning to hang on his every word? The scriptures tell us to test ourselves to make sure we're in the faith. We have an enormous capacity to deceive ourselves. So if you name yourself a Christian and have for a long time, but none of these evidences are present then more than likely, you have yet to follow him. But that can change today. The invitation to you is exactly the same as the person who's hearing this for the very first time. Jesus gave himself for you. 
So now simply respond by giving yourself to Him. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to follow Jesus. But it also means something else. It means to help other people follow Jesus. You see, the road to discipleship is most commonly traversed, not alone, but with a family member or a friend. And that's so plainly evident in this passage today. I wonder if you'll look again with me at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And jump to verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Simon and Nathanael came to Jesus, not through a loud, billowing voice from heaven, not through an incredible miracle that just overwhelmed them, but through the simple words of a brother and a friend. Just words. Do you know that the words of the gospel have the power to save? They're just words, and yet they carry the very power and grace and mercy of God. Andrew and Philip sought Simon and Nathaniel. That's it. There was no big fancy program, no overwhelming signs. Just people inviting people to Jesus. Friend, this is the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus. It means that as we together are living the Christian life, then we're inviting other people to come and see that they too might believe. It's Christians telling friends and family and coworkers and neighbors, roommates, and even strangers the good news of the gospel. It's the Word of God doing the work of God as we're faithful to share, trusting God to save. If you're new here at Church on Mill, we try as a church family to, to literally build the church around this message that God saves, the good news of the gospel. It's in the very shape of what we do together on Sunday mornings. Maybe you've noticed that Every time we get together, the first song we sing is a song of adoration. It's a song of, of praise to God. We're not asking Him to do anything. We're just recognizing together who He is. Then we take a moment and welcome each other. Then we sing another song like that, just another simple song of praise to God. Then we move into what we call a song of confession. And every week, that song is in some way, shape, or form, an articulation that 
we have failed to follow God and that God has offered Himself in our place. And so it's a song where we confess our sin and we confess the truthfulness of the gospel. And then the last song we sing is always an articulation of the gospel itself. It is an assurance of our pardon in Christ. And then we pray together, interceding. And then we open the scriptures and listen to what God says as the word is preached. Christian, does that sound familiar to you. That's the pattern of the gospel. We recognize who God is, which then leads us to see our own sin and need for God, which then brings about God making himself known and we respond with faith and trust. So in the very rhythms of what we do when we get together, we're trying to remind each other of the goodness of God and the truthfulness of the gospel. So that's a very open, public way that we're encouraging each other to follow Jesus and inviting others to do the same. But there's far more ways than just that. You see, down to the very structure of the church, we're aiming to be simple, to not do a whole lot of things that fill a whole lot of people's time but to do a few things and do them well and then simply encourage everybody to be building relationships with people. That's what the church is. It's relationship with God and relationship with God's people and together building relationships with non-Christians so that we can share the gospel with them. So we aim to do this through disciple makers and mentoring gospel communities. In other words, we actually believe that God really wants us to follow Him and gives us the power and the courage through the Spirit to do so. And that God loves Tempe and Phoenix and wants to see more and more people come to Christ. Amen? This is church. This is what we do because God has saved us. Now, sometimes inviting people to follow Jesus means helping them overcome the prejudices they have against Christ. None of us start actually with a blank, empty, clean slate. Nobody considers spiritual truth from a stance of neutrality. We all come to the table with preconceived ideas. Did you notice in the Bible, in this passage, that Nathaniel had one? When he was invited to come follow Jesus, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In Nathanael's day, it was commonly believed that the people who came from Nazareth were uh, cut below the rest. And so he had a prejudice against the idea that Jesus, the Messiah, could have come from a town like that. But I find it so fascinating what Philip did. Philip simply said, well, come and see. That's so different than my orientation. If I hear someone claiming an 
unbiased stance against Christ, but one in which they're already sure he's not who he says he is. I would like to argue with them. I like to persuade them. I like to convince them uh, that they're stupid. But that's not very Christian, is it? I have much to learn from Nathaniel. Now, there is a place to engage in dialogue, even tenacious dialogue, about skepticism against Christ. But, but mainly, our posture ought to be, well, just come and see. Come get around other Christians, whether that's over a table at Starbucks or here in our worship gatherings. Come and see. God is fully able to overcome any opposition and any prejudice. Perhaps we'd be able to see more people come to Christ if we were less concerned with winning arguments and more concerned with winning people. There are common prejudices today, prejudices like, well, there can't be only one way, or Jesus was certainly a good man, but not God. Or you can't trust what the Bible says because it was written by men. Brothers and sisters, we, we do not need to feel ashamed to simply say, come, come and see. And then to pray and to trust God. So follow me and help other people follow me. That's what it means to be a Christian. To follow Him. Now, does it work? I am ever a pragmatic. So, think with me for a moment about that question. If this is what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, to help other people follow Jesus, does that actually work itself out in a way in which Christianity grows? Well, think for a moment, just take a brief, I'll promise it'll be brief, trip down memory lane. When Jesus spoke these words, when he said, follow me, in the ensuing decades, Christianity was considered nothing more than a tiny sect of Judaism in a tiny little corner of the Roman Empire among a nobody group of people. Jesus wasn't born into an important family. He had no resources. He held no political office. He had no religious training. He gathered together a group of rejects, relatively small batch of weirdos in a place that didn't matter. But within a couple hundred years, Christianity became the largest religion in the Roman Empire. I've been reading a, a book called Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Until that's written by a scholar. Lord Larry Horatio shows in this book that the social cost of becoming a Christian in the first several hundred years 
were enormous. You see, in this day, it was not believed like it sometimes is today that there is no God. Instead, it was most often believed that there are are a limitless number of gods. And in many ways, everywhere you go, everything you did, there was a God for that. So if you went to the mall, did you know malls are not a recent invention? If you went to the market, there were deities there. If you went to the family, a family members for dinner, there were deities there. If you wanted to open a business, be a part of a political society, or grow a crop, or have a baby. There were deities for all of these things. And in the middle of that grew up one faith, a faith that says there's one God. And this one God is jealous. He's a good spouse. He expects fidelity to him. He doesn't want you sleeping around on other gods. And so the social cost of being a Christian was everywhere you went, you had to decide. Today, am I going to follow Jesus and experience social ostracism? Or am I going to give in to that? And in the middle of that context, Christianity flourished Now fast forward all the way to today. More people believe in Christianity than any other religion in the entire world. Now that doesn't make it right. But it ought to cause you to ask, how has that happened? If it's not true, then what are other plausible explanations? For this tiny little group of people leading to millions of people gathering around the world today to worship Jesus. Yes, it does work. But more importantly, it's true. Christianity is true. Jesus really did die, rise again. God the Father really is a loving, good, gracious, just, merciful, amazing God. Follow. Now to close, would you look at that last verse of the chapter? Jesus said to him, truly, truly, this is like when your mom would call you by your full name. It means listen up. This is important. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That was supposed to clear things up, but 
Not so much. Let me briefly explain this beautiful image. The first book in the Bible is a book called Genesis. And in the book of Genesis was a guy named Jacob. The name Jacob means deceiver, and it fit. Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob tricked his brother and his father out of something very important. And then his brother got mad enough that he seemed to want to kill him. Family feuds have been going a very long time. Jacob, in response to the anger of his brother, set out on the first ultramarathon in the Bible. He took off running. He ran 40-something miles in a day. Then he reached the point of complete exhaustion, laid down to sleep. Genesis 28 says he laid his head on a rock. You know you're tired if you can sleep with your head on a rock. But as he slept, he had a vision. And in this vision, there was a ladder. And on the ladder were angels coming down to deliver mercy to him. And as part of this vision, God renamed Jacob Israel. Maybe that sounds familiar to you. This renaming was a way of God saying, this vision of me bringing mercy to you is true. Despite the fact that, Jacob, you're a deceiver, I am giving you a new identity, and I will be faithful to fulfill my promises to your ancestors. I will build a people through you, and this people will come from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship God. Well, Jacob arose from this vision, woke up, and life wasn't easy. It was incredibly different. Now, of all the places Jesus could reach back in the Old Testament and say, that was about me, he chose this one. Do you see what he's saying? We Christians believe that that first two-thirds of your Bible that predated the time Jesus came to earth wasn't prior to Jesus. Jesus already existed and embedded in actual events in history was a foretelling, a foreshadowing of what Jesus would come to do and to be. It's quite incredible if you really stop to think about it. That this vision given to Jacob was ultimately not about Jacob. It was about Jesus. And Jesus is saying here, follow me. Because on me, on my person, is mercy coming down from heaven. And on me, on my person, is the way up into the very throne room of God. That is incredible. Jesus says to those who have doubts, look to me. 
I am the one through whom mercy can come to you, you deceiver. I can give you a new identity. And on me, even you can be welcomed by the Father. Let's follow Jesus and help others do the same. Will you pray with me? Father, this has been a plain message. But the opportunity is profound. Father, I pray for those in the room who have yet to trust Christ, have yet to begin the wonderful adventure of following Jesus. Pray, God, you would show yourself through your people and your word to them. And that even now, God, they would turn from sin and turn to you as they recognize you have already been seeking them. I pray also, Lord, for brothers and sisters in the room, people who have already trusted Christ. God, that where we have been keeping secrets, where there's parts of our lives not covered with your dust, but rather with the filth of the world, where we have been polluted by the stain of sins, that God, we would recognize in you we have already and forever been washed whiter than snow. And that we would again choose to follow in your steps. Fathers, we will leave in just a few minutes. We'll walk out into a city full of people with desperate needs. The greatest need of which is to be made right with you. And so we would pray as a church that you would help us to be a light that we would walk not in darkness but in the light and then freely share the light. We thank you, God, that you have many more in this city to win. We do pray you would use us for that very purpose. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.